Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn again to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth chapter 4, we have been looking at uh, this short story, but an amazing story, the picture of redemption and the work that the Lord is, is doing, what he did in the life of, of Ruth, this woman from Moab, and bringing her to Boaz, and then the picture of that redemption that is evident for us in the work of Jesus Christ. One commentator on this book noted that the book of Ruth begins with three funerals and it ends with a wedding. You know, weddings are something that many little girls dream of. They even pretend, they play and look at that. Yet, unfortunately, in America, it seems that there is a love for weddings that is much greater than the love for marriage. You know, a lot of planning and preparation goes into the details of a wedding to make it the perfect day. According to the Knot website, the average cost of a wedding in America last year was $30,000. Now, when it breaks down by states, it was only $23,000 in Arizona. But, you know, it's interesting, the focus that is often on the wedding that is not necessarily directed to the marriage. Several years ago, W.F. Price wrote an article that was titled, Stop Looking for a Wife, You Won't Find One. And in it, he highlighted the cultural shift that had taken place in our nation a number of years ago. The focus from the marriage to the wedding, from being a wife to being a bride. And he noted the, the shift by comparing two Disney movies that had come out 13 years apart. Snow White in 1937 and Cinderella in 1950. He noted that, that Snow White was shy, demure, and modest, both in her temperament and in her appearance. When the prince appears, she hides. And after being told to flee into the forest for her life, she finds a house there, and she is delighted to cook and clean and sing for the dwarfs. She's kind to these short, stumpy, bald, blue-collar workers. She loves them, they love her. She even wins over the heart of Grumpy. On the other hand, Cinderella is forced into domestic duties by a woman who gave a generation of stepmothers a bad name. She looks for the day that she can be freed from the drudgery of housework. For Cinderella, it's all about the, the ball and the gown. Snow White sleeps and must wait for the man that desires her to, to marry her to come along. Cinderella longs to go to the ball where she can compete with a bevy of, of other women to see who is the most glamorous. And win the affection and the attention of a man who's not all that interested in marriage to begin with, but his father, the king, is kind of pushing him that direction. And so it really is a contrast. In the end, Snow White ends up, ends with a kiss from a man who sought her, but there's actually no wedding in the story. Cinderella ends with the royal wedding, the beautiful gown, and then leaving for the honeymoon. 
And the article is interesting. It's a study in the cultural shift that takes place from the focus on wives to brides, from the marriage to the wedding. Now, please don't misunderstand. I, I'm simply interested in the societal comparison, the change, and, and not trying to enter into the debate as to which is the best Disney princess. I'm just happy to go back to a day when Disney portrayed romantic relationships as between a man and a woman. Like that would be a blessing. But my point is that while weddings are important and they are special occasions, the biblical priority is on marriage. The emphasis is on the covenant, not the ceremony in Scripture. And what I want us to see from from Ruth 4 is that a biblical perspective on marriage will recognize God's design and advance the cause of Christ. And while that commentator wrote that the book of Ruth begins with three funerals and ends with a wedding, we actually don't see a wedding in this passage. What we see is an emphasis on marriage. The wife, not the bride. There is something more important than a wedding, and that is the covenantal relationship of marriage. And what I want us to consider this morning is the romance of redemption. As we're coming to this final chapter and and looking at it, and then, Lord willing, concluding next week as we look at this, this book of Ruth. But if you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading in Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Ruth 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the woman, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. The close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malion's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the, the widow of Malion, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brethren and from his portion at the gate. You are witnesses this day. 
And all the people that were at the gate, the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that we would see the blessing of, of the redemption that is taking place in the story and recognize what Christ has done for us. We pray that we would live in such a way as that we are selfless in our relationships, that you would be glorified. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. In this passage, we see a really a biblical perspective on marriage and and understanding what God is doing. It's it's a fascinating passage. If you have been with us, we've seen that that Elimelech went into Moab because of a famine in the land. He ends up dying. His sons marry women in Moab, and then they die. And Naomi comes back, and Ruth comes with her. The wife of one of the sons, the other wife stays in, in Moab. They come back at the harvest season. Ruth goes into the field and ends up in the field of Boaz. Boaz takes an interest in her, as a kind, shows kindness, and tells her to continue working there until the harvest season has ended. So it would probably be a couple of months. And then realizing this is a relative, Naomi encourages Ruth to go to the threshing floor and in essence say, you are a kinsman redeemer and that she would be interested in a marriage. Well, Boaz is very upfront and says, there's a, there's a relative that is closer than I am. But I will handle this and do it quickly. And so that's where we find ourselves as we come to chapter 4. And I want us to see this morning, first of all, the purposefulness of Boaz and his actions and what he is doing. Now, up until this point, Ruth has been a, a key figure in the story. But at this time, now, her fate is a key aspect, but Boaz becomes the main character. Ruth now becomes a supporting character in the the romance of redemption story. We find that Boaz arrives at the city gates early in the morning. He's beating the rush hour traffic in Bethlehem. And and understanding that he would go to the gates, this would be the place where where business would be conducted, the the court would go on, or the city offices. It would be that type of a situation, and he wants to do the right thing. This is a picture of what the city would have looked like at that time. When it speaks of the gates, there would have been multiple gates. The blue arrows there are pointing to a couple of the gates that would have been present. And so there would be a system where these gates would be closed at night and then open, but there would be courtyards. Part of that would be for protection, that there would be guards there. It would would be that if an army were to come, they would have to work through this, but it was also an open area. If you've been to Israel, you know that the streets are fairly narrow, and so you really couldn't conduct business in the street. But the the gates would be the place that that could be done. These arrows are pointing to where those, those... gates would be the red arrows pointing to a meeting area this was an area that we had visited this past summer and in one of the cities there and and so that raised area would be a place where business would be conducted and there are benches to the right of that where people could sit Boaz gets there early and and he sees his his relative coming and as he sees him coming he pulls him aside then the leaders of the city come, the elders of the city, and, and, and Boaz invites them to sit down. 
I think it speaks of the prominence that he had in the city. He was, he was a man of valor, and we've already considered that back in chapter 2. He, he was a man who had some standing, and, and some commentators think he could have been the leader of Bethlehem. In fact, from a family perspective, there were relatives of his that had had that position. But this would be the place where business would be conducted. And what we see is that, first of all, he wants to seek resolution very quickly. He's not going to let this last. So he calls over the relative. He says, come aside, friend. And notice how the, the, it begins. It says, and behold, this, this relative came by. It's, again, one of those statements that is highlighting the hand of God in almost an understated way. In the same way that we read in chapter 2 that, that Ruth just happened to go to the field of Boaz. This relative just happens to show up. And, and Boaz is there waiting for him. But God is directing the affairs of man. And, and so look what happens. He, he then gathers the ten city leaders. That was the necess necessary number for a quorum to conduct business, to make it official. And now he presents the case. He lays it out and he begins with the good news. You know, sometimes people will come to us and say, you know, I've got some good news and bad news. What do you want first? Well, give me the bad news so it ends with the good news. Well, Boaz reverses it. He wants to start with the good news and then paint the picture so that he brings the, the negative aspects for this, this relative up after the fact. So he lays out the case in verses 3 through 8. And, and really what we find in these verses is like a, a court transcript. It's recording the conversation that went on. That Naomi has come back from Moab, she, she had sold a piece of, of property, and, and you're the nearer relative, it's only you and me that can buy it back to redeem it, the, the process of redemption in Israel. And so, but you're first, so if you want it, you can buy it. He says, I want it. <laughs> There's nobody else who can get it. There's no other relatives. He gets to buy the property. He's going to add it to his estate. This is a, this is a good deal. And then we see that Boaz shares some information very strategically. After starting with the good news, now he gives the negative side. Because there's only two relatives, the, the kinsman redeemer, the goel is the, the Hebrew word there. And so the guy says, yeah, I want it, I'll buy it. And, and if we were reading the story for the first time, our hearts might sink. No, we don't want him to be the prince who comes along. We want Boaz to be the one. And, and, and we would, we're familiar with how it's going to turn out, but, but the way it's being presented is he lays it out, and this guy says, I'll buy it. And it's like, no. But Boaz isn't done. Now he says, well, that's the opportunity. Let me share with you the duty. Because if you are the kinsman redeemer, these both come together. There's, there's opportunity, but there's also responsibility. And notice how he brings out this complicating factor of, of Ruth entering the picture. Not only do you buy the property from Naomi, but from Ruth. And in doing that, you really need to then take Ruth as your wife. And notice how he presents this, that the, there's a duty in redeeming Ruth. And, and this is actually the first time that the Laverite marriage is mentioned directly in this passage. Now, I explained it back in, in chapter 2, that as a relative, that the process to, to continue the family line, to keep the name within Israel. 
that, that if a, a man died and did not have any children, then his brother would marry that widow. And the first son born then would perpetuate the, the dead man's line. Other children then would perpetuate that son's line. And so that was the process. This is the first time that's actually mentioned in this, this book. And, and so as he mentions, he says, now your responsibility then is for the wife of the deceased relative. Oh, and by the way, it's Ruth the Moabitess. She's not an Israelite. She's from a country that isn't real friendly to Israel. She's not from around here. And she's a widow, of course. And so you will perpetuate the name of the dead relative through his inheritance. All of a sudden, this really good deal doesn't sound so good. It's gotten very complicated. And this is what's taking place. And, and what we're seeing is the importance of the line of Elimelech is hanging on, on very two, you know, fragile threads. There's two widows, Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi's past childbearing age. And, and so really, it's hanging with Ruth only, the daughter-in-law of Elimelech. And so really, that's the only realistic chance for this lineage continuing. And once that name dies out, that for in Israel, this would be a huge catastrophe. One of the worst curses that you could invoke on another person in ancient Israel was may your seed perish and your name die out. In fact, after Israel is defeated at Ai, Joshua pours out his heart to the Lord and he says in Joshua 7 verse 9, the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will happen to your great name? In 1 Samuel 24 verse 21, Saul tells David, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. This was a big deal. And this is what is being laid out, that there are only two relatives that can perpetuate the name of Elimelech. And, and so these are the concerns, and, and this relative says, yeah, that's, that's not what I'm signing up for. But let me ask you, which of these concerns would also apply to Boaz? All of them. Everything that this relative is looking at would apply to Boaz, but what we see is there's a different perspective. This relative is more protective of his self-interest than he is of a concern for Elimelech. And I think it's interesting considering in verses 6 through 8, we see his, his concerns as he lays it out. He said, I can't redeem this for myself. I'll ruin my own inheritance. You know, his first concern is for his own heritage. He wants his inheritance to go to his immediate family. And, and the problem, you know, we, I've already laid out, well, the first son would then continue the line of Elimelech and, and whatever he had. But what if there is only one son? What if he doesn't have other children? Then that means all of his heritage, his inheritance now goes to that son. And if there's only one child, and, and realize Ruth has already been married for 10 years and had no children. And so there may not be that possibility of, of having a big family. 
And so the, he's wondering about this. He's concerned that he might jeopardize, jeopardize his own heritage. You know, as a, you know the, an aged man who was a bachelor all his life once said, somebody asked him, why were you never married? He said, I decided I would rather spend my, wife, my life wanting something I didn't have than having something I didn't want. <laughs> this guy doesn't want to take any chances. Now, those are not the only two options. But this man is afraid he might end up with something he didn't want and it might hurt his heritage. He's focused on that. A second concern is for his fortune. Because now that what seemed like this really good deal, you buy this property, you put it in your estate, and now you've increased your holdings, now he realizes you buy this property, you have a son, you spend money raising him, taking care of, of Ruth and Naomi, and then you give the property back to him. So you spend all this money, and you don't get to keep it you're actually having to give it to somebody else. So he would redeem the property, then he would be liable for Naomi's support, he would take care of Ruth and then the upkeep for a child, and, and you know, he's saying, you know, this is expensive. You know, when you, you get married, there, there's added costs. I tell couples in premarital counseling, two people can live as cheaply as one for half as long. <laughs> because the, the costs increase. And, and, and he's saying, he's thinking, okay, when this son reaches adulthood, now I have to sign this back over to him. And so all of the purchase price, the upkeep, is now reverting to the line of Elimelech. And, and Boaz makes it clear that the purchase of the property and the marriage of Ruth are, are coming together to perpetuate the name of the dead. That's what he said in verse 5. And so for him, this is a financial decision. Yeah, it's not in my best interest. And the third thing we see is he's concerned for his own legacy. I've mentioned the importance of a name. That name continuing. Well, he's very concerned about his name. Because if there's only one son, and, and really he's seeing some ethnic complications and implications because he would be marrying a Moabitess, and then the financial burden, all of this is, is convincing him, you know, this, this initial deal is too good to be true. Yeah, it sounded, it sounded good when I first got the flyer. But when I read the fine print, it's not such a good, good deal. So he's concerned that his name be perpetuated. Let me ask you, what is his name? It's not recorded. The Holy Spirit makes sure that we do not know his name. In fact, the Hebrew statement where that's interpreted, that's translated, come aside friend, is Peloni Almoni. And it's, it's, it's a play on sounds that is saying, Mr. What's his name? The Holy Spirit made sure we don't know his name. Now, some commentators think the reason was that, not to embarrass his family. I don't think that's it, personally. Because his entire concern was about him. He was selfish in his focus. He didn't care about the name of Elimelech. Let that die out. But not me. I'm not going out on that limb. I'm not taking that chance. And I think he's looking out for himself. And Scripture makes sure that we don't even have his name. Because Jeremiah 45, verse 5 says, Do not seek great things for yourself. 
In Matthew 6, verse 33, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What things? Well, the needs of life, heavenly riches, those things that we would think is are, uh, that are important. So, so here is this man. He's been presented with this picture. You, you know, I've got the good news and now the bad news. And the bad news is, is really outweighing the good news in his mind. So what does he do? He is the nearest relative. He's got some options. You know, he could agree to buy the land, do all the paperwork, re- get it, agree to marry Ruth, and then back out on the marriage. You know, he could do that. But that really wouldn't look good. He could go ahead with the marriage, but now he's taking the risk that if there's only one son, if there's only one child, then all of the line that's continued is that of Elimelech. You know, he, he, if he were to back out, that really would taint his name. I mean, his name would not be good in the city. Or he could pass on the deal. Boaz has already indicated. He'll step in. He'll, he'll marry Ruth. He's willing to do it. And, and so while it, it might look like he's less than helpful, it's not unethical. Nobody's going to really look down on him. He just, you know, he says, yeah, I can't do that. And let's Boaz do it. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of a no harm, no foul. And that's what he chooses to do. But again, what, which of these concerns would apply to Boaz? He would be under the same concerns. I mean, he's, he's an older man. He's, he's made this clear a couple of times. He's amazed that Ruth would be interested in him as an older man rather than a, the younger man. He knows the, that Ruth has been remarried and there were no children in those 10 years of marriage while they were in Moab. He understands that he is actually perpetuating the line of Elimelech, that that is the name that is going on and Malon and Kilion and trying to keep this going and and up to this point of the story we didn't even know which of Elimelech's sons Ruth had married I mean we've come all the way to the last chapter before that's even revealed but you notice Boaz isn't striving to protect his financial interests he's not concerned to advance his fame and we think less of the kinsmen this other relative, not because he was unethical or evil. What he did was not evil, but he was selfish. He lived his life looking out for number one. And understanding that, I think, is helpful for us as we then come to the proper perspective on marriage. Because we see this marriage coming together as a selfless man and a woman of valor, of virtue, as she's referred to who's come out of a background that we don't know what she was involved in in Moab. But in the short time she's been in Bethlehem, she has the reputation of a a woman of virtue. And so Boaz is very interested. Now, this procedure probably happened very quickly. This was not a long, drawn-out negotiation. Boaz lays out the case. He says, here's the property. He said, I'll buy it. Now, when you buy it, you have to also take Ruth. And yeah, I don't want it. You can do it. This may have been a 15-minute process. And then we'll get on with our day. It was a quick offer. The offer was made. It was rejected. And then the validation. And and rather than signing a stack of documents, we'll have our lawyer contact your lawyer. We'll, We'll fill this out. And then you come and we'll sign all these papers. That's not how they did it. They simply took off the sandal and handed it to the other person. 
Now, that seems strange, and, and it is, but if you've ever done the, the paperwork for home purchase or refinance, I kind of like this idea. It's, it's a whole lot quicker. It's much easier, and, and there's, a, there's a reason for this, I think. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 3, God tells Joshua that every place that the sole of your foot will tread, that I have given to you. That where your foot steps, that's your property. And so the symbolism then in giving the sandal is this can be your property. I am giving that to you, that you can make the purchase. And, and, and through all of this, understand that Boaz is doing what is right. From the very moment that Ruth said, I, I would be interested in marrying you which was really her, her approach in chapter 3. Boaz said, I would love to do that, but there's somebody else. As a man of integrity, he's going to follow the law. He shows up early to follow the law. He gets the elders together so that everything that is done is legal. And folks, I think it's important for us because what we see, first of all, is marriage is a picture of redemption. In verse 9, Boaz says, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's. I've, I've redeemed it. All that was Kilion's and Malon's. I, I, am, I am buying it back. His focus was on redemption, not preservation. He wasn't looking out for himself. He was looking at how can he help others. Folks, Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He fulfilled the law. He came and kept the law. What he did was what was necessary because our problem with, with our relationship with God was a legal problem. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God and what sin earns, the wages of sin, is death. That's a legal problem. There's a price that has to be paid because of sin. And that's why Christ came. He came to die. Christ died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. There was a debt that had to be pray, paid, and when he paid it, he canceled our debt. And so there was, there's the picture of redemption. The picture of marriage is much more than a wedding ceremony. It's a covenantal commitment to persevere for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. The near kinsman, he, he was interested when it was richer. When the money was right, the land was there, but not when he saw the other issues. And it, it, was, it was really, it's that selfless love in a marriage that helps us grow. We grow through difficulties. You know, when are we most like Christ? When everything is going well, when, when our, our spouse is meeting our needs and people are agreeing with us and everything is wonderful... Or when there's difficulties. You know, when we get up and we're having a bad day and the car's, you know, car's not working properly and this problem and somebody's sick and we've got all these things going on, that's when we display Christ-likeness. See, marriage is about Christ and His bride, the church. That was God's plan from the beginning, but it wasn't revealed until the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit allows Paul to reveal it in, in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He's talking about marriage. And we're most like Christ when, when we are loving those who are not lovely at the time. 
Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovely, and understanding that, and when we see this, the, the selflessness, the humility that are seen in marriage, you know, at the wedding ceremony, not so much. At the ceremony, it's all about the couple. That's, that's why people are there. And I know as a preacher and as the officiant, and I try to give the gospel, but I know I have a limited window that people are not there for a message. And if I go too long, I'm going to lose them. Why? Because it's about the couple. And that's fine. And, and when, I give a, when I do the, a wedding, I, I usually have talked with the couple and gotten their testimonies, and I give the gospel through their testimonies. Because there's often unsaved people and family and friends that are there, and I want to give the gospel, but I also know that I, I have to be strategic because if I just say, okay, we're going to preach for 45 minutes, it's not going to go well. Why? Because the focus is on the couple. In the marriage, our focus needs to be on Christ. Because after the ceremony, not everybody's going to be looking at us. They're going about their life. They've got other things going on. And weddings are special. And they're wonderful opportunities to, to demonstrate Christ and His church. But let's face it, it's probably the most choreographed day of your life. Unless you're part of a coronation sometime. I mean, I've gotten schedules down to the minute, which is fine with me. Just tell me when I walk out. You know, tell me, and, and, and we'll work through this. But, but understand, life is not choreographed. Oh, we have plans, but it, how often does life not go as we planned? Well, that wasn't what I expected. Well, that wasn't what I wanted. See, biblical love is displayed in the mundane, the everyday, the ups and downs, the frustrations, the struggles, when, when you're not feeling well and, and yet you have to respond properly. When the kids are sick or somebody's angry or all these, that's when we're living life and that's when we show Christ and His church. Because Christ came to redeem you and me, not because we impressed Him, not because we won out at the ball or lost a slipper, he came to seek and to save those who were lost. And we were lost in trespasses and sin, alienated from the righteousness of God. So marriage is a picture of redemption. Secondly, marriage is a picture of security. It's a place of security. It provides that, that comfort. Boaz was concerned for the security of Ruth and Naomi. He was concerned about the line of Elimelech. He wasn't thinking about his own land. He wasn't even just thinking about Ruth. He was concerned for Naomi. He was concerned for Elimelech. He was concerned for Malon and Kilion. He was looking at the family. See, the source of security is not in the wedding, but in the marriage. And we don't win his affection by com competing with others. And we don't have to worry about losing his care. Because Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's the picture we have. There is, there is a protection in marriage. Protection not just for the couple, but also for the, the community. And so that's the first aspect of this security that I, I want us to see, that protection that is there, that, that it's protection for our society. This was, this was God's established plan in Genesis 1. Marriage is about more than just two people who love each other. It's God's design to strengthen and protect society. 
So we see it happening at the city gates. As, as he, Boaz says to all of the elders, and it says the people that are there were there, because you're sure you can tell that a crowd's going to gather. You know, we want to see what's happening. Boaz has called these people aside. There's something going on. Let's watch. And he says in front of all of them, you, this is what's taking place. Do you know how many problems are there in our culture, our society today because of the breakdown of marriage? And I truly believe that Satan attacks marriage because it is a picture of Christ in the church. And that as Christians, when we enter marriage, we have problems. We're sinners living close together. But we can solve problems biblically with God's help. If we will come with that heart of surrender, selflessness. Now, Naomi and Ruth were very vulnerable as widows. And when Ruth came to Israel, leaving Moab, she walked away from her human security. This is why Naomi tried to convince her to stay. Look, you have a better chance of remarrying if you stay in Moab. Meet a nice Moabite man and, and have a family and keep doing, serving your God. She said, no, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She was trusting the God of Israel. And the God of Israel protected her. There is security for us as the bride of Christ. As, as a church family, we encourage each other. There's protection, there's provision. At the beginning of the story, Naomi names herself, she gives herself a new name, Mara, bitter. My life is bitter, things aren't going well. At the end of the story, the woman of the community named her grandson. We'll look at that next week, but why did Boaz marry Ruth? In part, it was to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. This wasn't some mere emotion that, oh, he just, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't live without her. It wasn't simply physical attraction. He was determined to do the right thing and let God work. You know, are we willing to do what's right, to step out by faith and trust God to work? Do you want God's blessing on your life? Then determine to follow the Lord. Do right and let Him take care of the details. He will take care of you. And the third thing that we see is the prosperity. The continuation of the family, the posterity that will come as there is a son that is born and with this son to a woman who had no children for 10 years. The sorrow, the grief, the, the hope, the anticipation and then to go through all of that and now to have a, a son who will end up in the, the lineage of King David and of the Messiah. Folks, understanding raising children for the glory of God is much more consequential than a marriage ceremony, than coming to a wedding. The marriage is where we invest in the lives of others as God would bless with children. And that, that's up to the Lord. But what we need to understand, thirdly, is marriage provides potential for ministry. Marriage is, is more than a social, civic, or ceremonial event. The wedding ceremony. Joshua proclaimed, as for me and my house, that is my family, we will serve the Lord. It's more than a personal issue, a, a status that it, it's really a couple joined together in the sight of God and other humans. And then as Christians, we live with eternity in view. So Matthew 6.33, as I mentioned earlier, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What was the near relative seeking? 
his name, his finances, his heritage. We don't know what his financial status was. He might have done very well on this earth, but he couldn't take it with him. Once he died, it was left behind. We don't even know his name. He has no name that continues. We don't know his legacy, but we know the legacy of Boaz. Boaz really wasn't concerned about his name. He was willing to perpetuate the name of Elimelech, but we know the name of Boaz. Why? Because he was concerned of others. And understanding this, no, he, this other relative is the unknown. He's remembered as a name, man who lived to protect his name, his family, his fortune. He walked by sight. And when the numbers didn't add up, he backed out. If you take care of the things of the Lord, he will take care of you. If you reverse it, you're on your own. You know, I'd rather trust him than me. He can do a much better job than I can. And that's why investing for eternity is not simply a slogan, it's a lifestyle. But the question is, is it our lifestyle? We can say the right words, but is it really our heart? Or do we say, well, as long as the numbers add up, then I'll do that. But if not, I'm out of here. Yeah, that's what this relative did. And it wasn't sinful, he wasn't evil, but he was self-focused. He was faithless. If your life doesn't require faith, it really is faithless. And so are we investing for eternity in the lives of others? Are you personally committed to using personal relationships for the glory of God in marriage, in family, in friendships, in church, with others? Do we seek to, to invest in the lives of others, not use people, but to invest in people? that the name of the Lord would be exalted. A biblical perspective on marriage realizes that it's God's design. It's for His glory. And it's that our marriages would reflect the relationship of Christ in the church. Do you have that relationship today? Are you part of the bride of Christ because you've turned from sin and trusted Christ alone as your Savior? If not, you can if you would commit your life to Him today. Let's pray together.